Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts. So if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster, M-O-N-S-T-A.com. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Business of Marketing Podcast where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought-provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge. Welcome again to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. My guest today has over 29 years of marketing and customer experience expertise and has worked with more than 700 companies, including 36 of the Fortune 500. His resume includes best-selling books, the Speakers Hall of Fame, and multiple successful business ventures. And I've had the pleasure of being in the audience of his keynotes and webinars, and I want to make sure I'm able to share a bit of his expertise with you today. So welcome to the show, Jay Bear. Hey, Jay. My man, thank you so much. Fantastic to be here. Psyched uh, to have the time together on the show. Great. Glad you're here, man. So we're going to touch on several aspects of marketing today, especially content marketing uh, and podcasting and more. But first, I want to ask you about something that you might not expect. And it's the fact that you have a very well-crafted personal brand. So well-crafted that you have an app for it. So in fact, it's, <laughs> it's too well-crafted for me to think that there wasn't an intentional strategy behind it. So Jay, can you tell us about your personal brand and, and the work behind it? Yeah, so there's lots of things that I try to adhere to, but but the one that I'm perhaps best known for is that I'm a, a lover of plaid. In fact, if uh, uh, you happen to catch the audio or the, the video version or the, or the outtakes of the show, I'm wearing a plaid sport coat now, as I often do, <laughs> almost always do. Uh, and so when people book me to give a presentation in person or virtual, they get to go to a special website. You all can go there now if you want. It's dressjbear.com, dressjbear.com. And it has all 14 of the suits that I currently own, all 14 are different colors of plaid. Some are green, some are orange, purple, whatever. Uh, and the meeting planner gets to select which suit I wear. And then it goes on my calendar. We got a little Zapier set up. And so it shows up on my calendar so I know what to pack or what to bring with me um, for for the event. Uh, and meeting planners love it because it kind of makes them part of the gag and is experiential. And sometimes the best time is when they uh, come up with maybe three that they enjoy. Then they put it out to the audience or the the attendees and say, all right, here's the three finalists. Which one do you want Jay to wear on stage? That's really fun because then the whole audience is in on the bit. Uh, how I started it, though, was, Wait, was really all three suits with you. No, no, I make them both. No, good question. Uh, no, I make them pick in advance. I make them pick in advance. Uh, yeah, carry on only, man. Uh, I'm not checking luggage. Um, the way it started, though, was purely utilitarian. Uh, my observation was that as somebody who gives a lot of presentations for money, after you give a presentation, it's good if the audience can find you because maybe they want to ask a question that they didn't think to ask at the time, or maybe they'd like to say, hey, that was really good. Would you like to come give a similar presentation to my organization, et cetera, et cetera. My parallel observation was in contemporary business, men tend to dress all the same. And, and the farther up you get in the business hierarchy, the more that is the case. 
So CEOs tend to dress more similarly than CMOs and directors of marketing a little less, right? And and marketing managers a little less. So as you go up the hierarchy, the um, consistency of dress code tends to be more. And, and so the people who can actually make decisions are the ones who all look the same. Everybody's wearing a blue suit or a gray suit. And I'm like, well, what if I wasn't doing that? <laughs> what if I was wearing a suit that nobody else is wearing? It'll be a lot easier to find me at the break, at lunch, at happy hour. Uh, and so that's how I started it. And it proved to be effective. People were much easier to find me. And then after a few years, I'm like, well, wait a second. What if I made it something that was more of an experience for my actual client, mm-hmm. which is the meeting planner in most cases? And so that's how we came up with it. Wow. Because I know the first time I saw you, I was like, this guy definitely has a fashion sense, but it can't be coincidence. <laughs> And then when I saw you the second time, I was like, okay, another plaid suit is very intentional. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and and I'm also like a weird shape, uh, sort of a Frankenstein shape. And so I got to get them made anyway. Like I can buy them off the rack, but by the time they finish tweaking it to fit me, I could have just bought a custom one. So I, I, I've got a suit man, a uh, suited gentleman uh, who who makes them for me. And every time he gets like crazy new fabrics that nobody else would ever purchase, uh, he hits me up. He's like, I got one for you. No one else will buy this, but you will buy it. Wow. So I'm sure with this brand that, you know, it's like you mentioned earlier, it helps your business, uh, especially with your tremendous speaking career, um, you know, benefiting from this personal brand. So what do you say to business professionals? You mentioned that, you know, the higher the uh, a hierarchy, yeah. they become more and more alike. So in any industry, um, if they want to increase their personal brand but haven't yet taken the steps to create content for that brand, what would you say yeah. to them? And it, it's either the personal brand or, or even the business brand. I mean, the way I would classify what I do with the suits is a talk trigger, which is just like the book I wrote called Talk Triggers. And the definition of a talk trigger is an operational choice that is designed to create conversations. Word of mouth is the single most important way to build clients, relationships, customers. But the problem is we almost always take it for granted. We just figure, you know, if I do a good job, eventually people will notice that and talk about it. But that's not actually the way people behave. All of us, we can't help it. All of us are wired physiologically the same way. It's it's part of our brain chemistry. We are wired to discuss things that are different and ignore things that are the same. It, it just is how people are, are created. And, and consequently, it doesn't matter if it's a personal brand or a brand for your car wash or a brand for your insurance company or your car company or your cupcake business. Doing something that customers or prospective customers don't expect creates conversations in a way that competency simply doesn't. And, and that's why I always tell uh, either individuals or businesses, like, don't be afraid to be different, right? Like, like when companies get big and successful, they tend to take fewer risks. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is they then, in most cases, reduce their word of mouth. And then they have to spend more advertising dollars to grow because they've not given their customers a story that they want to go tell. So how does that executive... Stay safe. In other words, I was speaking with someone earlier who works for a global corporation. Um, he is mid-level management, but he is great at social media. He creates a lot of mm-hmm. great content, but he knows he's under a close watch. He's under eye. 
and he can't really yeah. do all that he could do for that brand because the brand is afraid to. And then those who have mm-hmm. the powers to say yes aren't going to create the content. So how does a corporation figure out, is it possible for a corporation that is conservative in terms of how they present to the world, how they take advantage of the, the, the media as it is today where we want things to be fresh and authentic and not so overplanned? How does a corporation work with that? Well, I, I, I don't believe that word of mouth only occurs when things are unplanned. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite. Uh, word of mouth typically occurs when things are very planned and consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you can get spikes in conversation when things are unplanned. That's the whole idea of, quote unquote, going viral. And going viral is great until it's not. And because once you go viral, at some point, you are no longer viral. And the algorithm will decide that. And it might be an hour, it might be a day, it might be a week, it might be a month, but it is temporary. Ipso facto, by definition, it is always temporary until you can hopefully do it again. And, and I certainly understand and respect that form of, of marketing. But what I try to work with people on is a different approach, which is what if you came up with a differentiator that you could use every day, every week, every month, every year, whether it's a plaid suit or one of the examples I use a lot is the chocolate chip cookie at Doubletree Hotels, right? Mm-hmm. So before the pandemic, they would give out 75,000 chocolate chip cookies a day worldwide, which is a lot of cookies, right? Uh, and I did a huge research project with Hilton, one of my clients, a- about the cookie. And it turns out that a third of their guests have told somebody a story about that cookie. So if you do the math on that, that's 25,000 stories a day about a chocolate chip cookie. And that's one of the reasons why Doubletree spends less on advertising than any other hotel chain in their category, because the guests are the advertising, right? So that's not unplanned at all. That is like 100% a plan. You got to buy an oven (laughs) in every hotel and teach somebody how to make cookies, right? It's like a whole thing. So there's, there's different ways to create conversation, right? There's the in-the-moment um, inspirational virality side, and then there's the strategic side. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I wonder, how do you think that conversation went when that first uh, person, whether it be the <laughs> marketer or marketing agency, said, hey, let's give away chocolate chip cookies at the front desk? I, I know exactly how it went because I asked him. Uh, the conversation was ex- precisely what you think, which is, yeah, that's cool. How much is that going to cost us? Right? It's, it's, it's immediately about the costs, not the, the benefits. Game. Yeah. yeah. They, they don't right? say, hey, and, and that's, how much does that benefit us? They say, how yes. Much and that's us? particularly true uh, with personal branding, and it's particularly true with word of mouth. Because the belief, incorrectly in, in many cases, but the belief is that it is impossible to measure. Um, I, I don't think word of mouth is any harder to measure than outdoor advertising, uh, and in some cases, it's not any harder to measure than radio uh, or a newspaper. But nobody's like, yeah, can't do any radio. It's not measurable, right? Somehow, word of mouth kind of gets a bad rap um, from a measurability standpoint. And, and it's not that it's not measurable. It's that most people don't want to work hard enough to measure it. So they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, how much does it cost? Now we're not going to do that. It's funny you said that because I was talking to Christopher Penn. You know Christopher Penn mm-hmm. for being such a, a great cool. data analyst. And I asked him that question because I, you know, I often hear that and I even, in the past, myself have said that certain things in marketing aren't measurable. And Christopher's response was, oh, it's all measurable. Everything's measurable 
if you want to spend enough money to measure it. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Which means he's exactly point, what I always say. What I always say on stage is sometimes you have to ask yourself, what's the ROI of knowing your ROI? Ah, beautiful. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, it totally it's measurable. How many people do you want to put against it and how much software do you want to buy? Mm-hmm. And then you that's spend, literally the equation. And sometimes it's not worth if, it. Yeah, you spend more money trying to figure out the answer to some puzzle of ROI than you do yeah. your product actually making money. <laughs> so exactly. Your business exactly. goes, goes, goes bankrupt with all the great answers. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to ask you, Jay. So it's funny. My listeners may wonder, you know, um, you're, you're the founder of a marketing firm, Convince and Convert, mm-hmm. but you just told me that I want to hit, get the history on that too. Some things have changed recently. Um, and my listeners may wonder why would I, you know, bring on a leader of another agency onto my podcast? Because I have an agency as well. And I'll tell you sure. why. Because Jay is one of the leading minds in marketing, first of all. Um, first time I met you, Jay, you were commanding the stage at a major marketing conference. And, and most of all, my goal in this podcast is to bring and share knowledge with other marketers. And, and yep. Jay, you're definitely that. So I want to ask you this. You mentioned Convince and Convert before we um, begin mm-hmm. recording. And I know that your time there, you must have seen a change in the way businesses view content marketing. Um, mm-hmm. And have there been any milestones where this change may have accelerated? Interesting question. Uh, and I like the way you phrase that. I started Convince and Convert in 2008. Um, it's now a global strategy firm, only strategy. Convince and Convert doesn't do a lot of execution. It's almost all strategy. Content strategy, social strategy, digital strategy, customer experience strategy. Um, it was uh, my second uh, digital firm. I started another one in 2000 and sold it. Um, I recently sold Convince and Convert uh, and am now an advisor to a collective of professional services firms called Experience Dynamic. The goal of Experience Dynamic is to marry marketing and customer experience. The, the, the data show that in most corporations, the marketers are in charge of customer experience now. Problem is a lot of people who are professional marketers don't really understand customer experience. And so we're trying to kind of hybridize those things together as strategists, which is a really exciting challenge and something I'm really passionate about. But you're exactly right. When I started Convince and Convert, I don't I don't even know that content marketing was a term that we used. I know Joe Polizzi was the one who originally coined it. I don't know the exact dates on that, but if if we if it was invented in 2008, we weren't talking about it very much. I can promise you that. Um, and and the whole idea that you would invest in it that you would have a department for it uh, and a budget and a line item and that you would pull money from an advertising budget to create your own content uh, was crazy. No one, no one ever thought that that was um, something that, that you would do. What's been interesting and I think one of the things that's powered the rise of content is the corresponding, I don't want to say collapse, but decay of traditional ways to reach customers. So I am old enough to remember, and I also, I started in direct mail. I was a direct mail specialist, right? Uh, I was in direct mail for a while. I was in radio for a while. I was in TV for a while. I was in magazine for a while. So I actually spent time in all of the things before digital. Uh, and then I started in digital in 1993. And, and so I've seen all of it. And, and one of the things that's powered the rise of content is that it's a lot harder to succeed with TV, It's a lot harder to succeed with radio and newspaper and magazine and direct mail and everything else, right? So certainly content has um, a tremendous number of inherent advantages. I wrote a whole book about it called Utility. But 
it also is helpful <laughs> that a lot of other alternatives that used to be the go-to are like, yeah, it's not as easy as it used to be. We should try, uh, we should try this other thing. And in terms of what was the tipping point, I don't know if there was one, but but I believe that the real tipping point was um, high-speed data access on phones. Once everybody could watch videos without having to be plugged into a computer, to me, that created breadth uh, for business-led content marketing uh, and made it all a lot easier to connect with with consumers. Mm. I like that because I, I think about the, the time frames you mentioned, um, recently someone pointed out to me, I had a Ustream show like in <laughs> 2006 or seven, And I'm thinking, what happened to that? And how, how was I even doing that back then? And right. <laughs> I don't even know what yeah, technology the that we had, like, yeah, using a flip cam and all this other I stuff. I don't know man, even how crazy. I did it, man. I'm, I don't know if I had a, a webcam or a, a, some kind of hand cam to attach my, I don't know how I did it. I mean, I love gadgets. I don't yeah. know what I did. But I'm thinking, okay, if I did that back then, first of all, I had to be on a computer for people to watch it because Ustream wasn't yep. probably mobile. In fact, I think I had a BlackBerry. If I had a, I probably had a Nextel <laughs> chirp back then. <laughs> and so my Nextel definitely wasn't going to do video. <laughs> <laughs> that is old school right there. Yeah. That, is a, that is a, I love that name, Jack. That's nice. I haven't heard that in a while. Nextel chirp. Yeah. It's a chirp, baby. Chirp. And I think even then we began doing websites. Video was not even a part of the, you know, because like you said, the bandwidth wasn't there to even do yeah. it. It, it was a horrible experience. So that is definitely yep. a milestone, I suppose, with the, just the bandwidth to be able to do certain things. I guess maybe yeah, and and also people have gotten a lot better. I mean, I started in in um, in the web development, web design, web hosting business back in the you know early early nineties before there were even browsers mm-hmm. to speak of, uh, and and the progress has been made on mobile websites and mobile apps has also really changed the game, right? So it used to be. Like, yeah, 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 you can do a bunch of content. You can have a bunch of white papers and web pages and infographics or whatever we called them back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could never look at it unless you're actually on a desktop computer. And and so none, none of this content was portable, mm-hmm. which, of course, reduces its effectiveness, especially at point of sale or near point of sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so B2B, I think, had an easier time with content earlier because – People are spending more time making purchase decisions in B2B usually, and a lot of times they're on an office computer. B2C, you're like, I don't know, what licorice should I buy? You're probably <laughs> not in your house, right? You're at, at the Circle K or the 7-Eleven or whatever, and so you only have your phone. So until content got totally consumable, mobile, uh, it was a little harder for B2C. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's a matter of the, even that bandwidth, was was it affordable? You know, your company has it, but you don't have it at yeah, home. Yeah, well, and... and in a lot of parts of the world, uh, it wasn't in, until, you know, really recently. In a lot of parts of Europe in particular, uh, you know, they were still charging by the megabit, right, uh, for, for, you know, for data. Uh, and what that tends to put a little bit of a chill on your uh, product research if you're like, wait a second, I got to invest in deciding which couch to buy. Uh, you're like, I'm just going to go down here to the store and do it. I don't need online content. So that's a big part of it too. So speaking of, of content, and I want to, Use two quotes here. One is yours, and one is our friend Andy Crestadina. Um, you can tell me which is which, or do I got to guess? <laughs> well, yours has been around for long enough where you won't, you will know that this is yours for sure. Oh no, it's mine. Okay, it's, good. I just, I'll play, I'll play a quiz game if you want. You just let me know. <laughs> well, this one dates back to 2014, but I'm, I bet you still know it. All right. And you said okay. content is fire, 
social media mm. is gasoline. You know that one. I did say that. Yep. And Andy said, more recently, the best content doesn't win. The best promoted content wins. So I'm guessing you put those two yep. together, you get, you know, the biggest content fire is the one that gets the most social media fuel, right? Yep, that's generally the case. Um, hey, look, the problem is most content lives natively uh, on on an owned channel. Mm-hmm. It's your podcast, your website, your whatever. Cool. Problem is, um, of all the places on the planet that someone could come across your content, your website probably gets the least amount of traffic. So unless you've got some sort of strategy to get your content merchandised, promoted, amplified, spread, you are almost entirely beholden to your current customers and or Google to direct traffic. And that's not a game I necessarily want to play. Not now. Um, there was a point at which you could probably win that way, um, that, that Google had enough um, unilateral strength. And, and there's probably some examples that still works today. But uh, you've got to have a plan, right, to, to make sure that people know that this exists. It Look, it's no different than the movie business. Like, there's a lot of amazing movies out there. Like, you can catch it on Netflix or sometimes, you know, like, there's these weird streaming services. That's an amazing movie. Never heard of it. Didn't even know it existed. Was never promoted. What, there was no TV commercial. There was no posters. There was no PR. There was no press tour. I mean, we saw this a lot during the pandemic, right? There was a ton of great movies, theater, art, music. I mean, there was a lot of great creativity that happened over the last two years that nobody ever heard of. And it's because the promotional elements of that business were cut off and content works the same way. Every time you spend real resources on a white paper, a podcast, a video series, a puppet show, if you're not spending just as much time, money, effort on figuring out how somebody's going to know your puppet show exists, you're going to be really disappointed with the results nine times out of ten. So I want to be specific about a certain kind of content now then. Um, Sure. You know, you have produced a lot of podcasts, whether it be through like Convince and Convert. Mm-hmm. Um, my company, Content Master, we, we produce a lot of podcasts as well, particularly B2B. And yeah. from my experience, I've seen some podcasts with the best content almost flatline, while some with mm-hmm. mediocre content may skyrocket. And mm-hmm. the clearest distinction is their promotion, like you just mentioned. So yeah. what kind of advice would you give for podcast promotion? Uh, I think one of the challenges is not promotion per se, but understanding um, the actual competitive set. L- l- let me unpack this for a second. Podcast listenership and consumption is growing, continues to grow. Uh, new research from Edison just came out this week, the new edition of the Infinite Dial podcast consumption continues to grow. But it's not growing exponentially or geometrically. Not anymore. And and it's not likely to. Uh, It goes up a few points a year, right? So it's, I don't know, 30% or something like that of Americans listen to podcasts at least once a month. Don't quote me on that because I haven't looked at the new numbers yet, but it's in that ballpark, okay? That's a lot of people, right? But it's not everybody. And what is really interesting in all the podcast research is that it shows very clearly and has for years that people who listen to podcasts, your hardcore, listen to five or six shows routinely. Five or six, period. Not, and, and you can't get them 
to listen to eight or nine, right? It's because people only have a certain amount of time in their life to listen to podcasts. It's five or six. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is when you start a new show, it's not so much about how good is the content, and it's not even in some cases about how good is the promotion. It's how clear are you on the most important question, which is whose audience are you going to steal? Mm. Because you are not creating new listeners. Almost nobody does. You are taking listeners from an existing set of shows. So you have to understand the people who are going to listen to your new podcast used to listen to this podcast. And how are you going to take them over? And when you understand that, and, and when we launch shows, we say, okay, write down the 10 shows we're going to steal audience from. That changes how you promote the show as well. It changes your marketing. It changes your amplification. It changes your keywords, the whole thing. And I think it's it's a really good way to think about the business because um, there's not that many people waking up and today and saying, well, I've never listened to podcasts before, but now I'm going to start. It just doesn't, you know, we're, we're kind of past that point. Well, you said you make a list of which shows you want to steal audience from. Mm-hmm. That's, and you also said that the, the, the real podcast listeners have a fixed number of hours they're going to listen to or shows they're going to listen to. Mm-hmm. So yeah. doesn't it make sense also that when you steal listeners, it could be from someone totally unrelated to your industry? Yes, potentially. That's exactly right. And that's where it gets a little tricky, right? Because you'll be like, all right, well, maybe we're, we're doing a B2B show. Uh, maybe we're just going to have people listen to fewer Joe Rogan episodes or fewer This American Life episodes. That that can absolutely happen. It's a little tricky to model that, of course. And so I tend to try to model it around more topical similarity than than um, than sort of broad general shows. But but you're exactly right. You could be taking people from from the big, um, more broadly consumer focused shows. Absolutely, it could be from a from a cooking show to an industrial yeah. parts show. Could be anything. <laughs> yeah. Could be anything. Yes. Yeah. So in terms of B2B podcasts, what do you think makes a good B2B podcast? Consistency uh, of topic and consistency of cadence. Uh, A lot of times B2B companies want to cover um, a whole bunch of different semi-related bases on the show. And it's because politically inside the organization, different divisions, departments, executive, customers, whatever, have to be kind of covered. It's like the old, hey, um, if we're going to have a eight, uh, you know, a carousel on the homepage mm-hmm. with like a rotating eight graphics, that's a sign you're not really sure who you are. I was thinking the right? same thing. What's I, important. I was thinking carousel or the menu. <laughs> Every department yes. was part of the menu. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and a lot of podcasts are the same, right? It's like what ties these topics together is that it's the same company that paid for it. It's like, what? <laughs> I mean, and if, and if you think about that, you couldn't get away with that in any other medium, right? Like imagine Sports Illustrated. You subscribe to Sports Illustrated and one week it is about sports and the next week it's about like cars and the week after that, it's about woodworking. You're like, I don't, I don't know what's up here, right? Mm. And so um, inconsistency of topics, a challenge and, and then cadence as well. I find a lot of B2B organizations um, without help from an organization uh, like, like yours or like, well, let's, you know, we, we don't have that much time or energy. We can't promote it that often because we got other things to promote. So let's just do like one show a month or maybe two shows a month. And I'm like, and it's awfully hard to build listener habits if you're not going to produce a show that they can actually consume habitually. I actually often ask clients, 
maybe you want to produce audio content and not a podcast. Because if you're doing well it once a month, that's audio content. But if you want yeah, to build an that's audience, a that's a webinar with no visuals. Exactly. Exactly. And so yeah. um, you know, you know, from running an agency, you don't take every client because sometimes a client may not know what they want. And then when you find out what they really want, it may not be what you what you create, what you produce for them. Yes. Um, so that's one of the things that I hear a lot is they really just want audio content or they say, how do we just get our toes wet in this and let's just do one episode? I'm like, okay, let's, let's not even call it a podcast and let's call it some audio content we'll produce for you and then you can see where it goes. Well, and, and, and then the natural next question is, hey, and by the way, why do you think you want audio content? Exactly. Right. And and if it's like, well, because we don't have any or, or some other reason that doesn't really have a strategic underpinning, you start to pull the thread or the thread on that sweater a little bit. And then it's like, well, somebody, mm-hmm. you know, somebody in a board meeting was like, how come we don't have any audio content? Right. And it's like, well, that's not really a strategy. Right. That's just well, typically a, it's how, you're just checking off a yeah, box. So why don't we have a podcast? And then they answer and you go, OK, well, go make us one and see how it goes. <laughs> like a pilot episode. Make a pilot, see how it goes. And we're going to measure the crap out of that pilot. And if it does, if it yeah. doesn't, you know, bring us business or have a thousand downloads in the first day, we're not going to do it again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that, and you, you, you raise a really interesting point too, especially in B2B. I'm always trying to um, underscore this point that it's absolutely not about total audience in B2B podcasts. It is a hundred percent about the right audience. Uh, you know, 500 targeted listeners are way more important than 2000 less targeted listeners, uh, and and the intimacy and persuasive ability of podcasts are literally unmatched in any content format. It's, it's more intimate and more powerful than video. It's more intimate and more powerful than long-form text. It's more intimate and more powerful than social. It is the most persuasive medium, and I can tell you that because I have made every kind of content that exists on this planet at scale, and not just for myself or big, big brands. And I can tell you that podcasts are the strongest thing done right. But in B2B, they get hung up on how many downloads they got as opposed to, okay, what percentage of these people who are listening to this show are actual customers or or prospects? One of the things I'm really excited about is I'm starting to see more and more companies think about podcasts almost in an ABM strategy. Mm -hmm. Like, look, we've got 200 target accounts and we want to make sure that as many of those 200 companies are listening to the show. Beyond that, we don't care. And I think that's a really smart approach. Yeah, we have an article on um, content master called account-based podcasting. Um, love it. And that came Love the term, from, love the premise. Yeah. You're on it. And, and we can't even, um, and we can't claim ownership of that because it was inspired by, I was talking to um, CMO of Demandbase. You know, they're you know, the, one of the biggest ABM mm-hmm. shops. And, yep, doing some work for them right now, actually. Yeah, and so they, they mentioned that, um, you know, they are really big on, they have a great uh, content hub on their website, and, you know, they're the experts in ABM, and we began talking about account-based podcasting, and he's like, you know, there are going to be some clients who are big enough to create content for that client and for, yeah. you know, the account-based podcast into the organization, which is kind of... Yeah, absolutely. That really yep. amazed um, me. <laughs> I think it's really exciting. And and there's some some cool technology uh, like Casted and some other platforms that, that make all of that a little more possible and, and turn podcasts into more of a sales enablement tool, et cetera. It's, uh, it's exciting. I think the B2B podcasting space today is much more interesting from an innovation perspective than the B2C podcasting space. 
It, it is. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm biased because I'm, I work mostly in the B2B, <laughs> you know, B2B marketing, B2B sales. I'm, I mean, I'm all about B2B. So um, I want to make sure the content has a business purpose. Uh, and doing B2C, that's pretty much out of the window. It's like, it's, a, it's an entertainment to make people laugh. You get on that licorice podcast I was talking about. On the licorice? You said licorice? Yeah, yeah, making licorice, I mean, licorice, licorice decisions podcast, right? We'll just line up all the licorice, you know, talk about licorice trends. Yeah, I mean, you might as well all make kinds that. of B2C shows. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, and I'm, I love how you talked about the, the power of podcasts right now. And you also mentioned earlier that you, you know, had been developing websites early on. I had a company who did that. And I remember when I was starting to build websites, a lot of clients says, uh, they say, do we really need blog articles on the website? This is early 2000s, you know? Right. And then yeah. we know how that went. Now they're essential. Um, then it was video. And again, now it's become essential for a content strategy. Of course, video has. Do you think that we're heading that same way for audio content? Mm, well. Because, you know. I think audio content is, I think audio content is essential. Is audio content on your own site essential? Maybe not as much because I think people tend to think about the third-party aggregation platforms as the home base for most of audio content. Mm -hmm. But that being said, like if you're going to make audio content and you're like, all right, it's going to live on Spotify or whatever, well, why wouldn't you put it on your site? Like just transcribe it. Now you got a blog post too. Yeah. Um, so there's literally no downside to doing it on your site. It's just that when you think about audio content uh, today, um, a lot of people are like, all right, if, I'm, if I want to consume audio content, I should first go to a place that collects all the audio content together. Yeah, We'll see how that shakes out over the next couple of years. So I guess if we remove the website from it and just think of it as terms of what does your marketing department create? Yeah. Uh, before they realize, oh, we, we need to have blog articles. I think, mm -hmm. oh, we need to do video. Maybe they're not, now they're getting hip to, you know what, we yeah. need to have some audio somewhere. Yeah, and the nice thing is it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? What, what I would always recommend, and a lot of people would probably agree at this point, is to just cascade it, right? To start with video, strip out the audio, transcribe it, and now you got all three. Yeah, in fact, that's the reason why Content Monster really narrowed down the past few years because we realized the hardest kind of content to make was video and podcasting and we had a lot of background on the audio video production so we said okay let's marry our two strengths marketing business marketing audio video production and then from that we can come up with the text for the blogs and all the other content so yeah absolutely yeah if you can't if you can't take a 30 minute podcast episode and turn it into three blog posts you got a problem yeah, exactly Exactly. That's where the, the repurposing and remixing. I mean, and, and if you can't do it, there's AI and bots out there that can. Yeah. I mean, it's questionable how good they can do it, but. Yeah, but at least, at least they, can get it, they can get it decent. They can get it to 80% and then you can tweak it if you need to. Exactly. Exactly. So Jay, before we go, um, I want to make sure that the listeners can find the opportunity that I've had to hear you speak in person. So, um, you know, you're one of the best and I encourage all of my listeners and business leaders and marketers to hear from you. So what's on your Thanks. calendar coming up? You know, I've got a ton of stuff coming up, but I don't know if there's anything that that you can just like show up at. <laughs> That's the challenge. <laughs> the good news is that I do a lot of corporate work and a lot of associations, which is really fun, right? The you know the association of RV dealers and the association of 
you know, fishing pole manufacturers or whatever. I love those kind of gigs, right? The the homogenous audience where everybody's from the same industry uh, or the same company is so fun because you can really customize your talk to, to their world. So I really appreciate that. The best thing to do is to uh, go to my website, jbear.com, uh, or even better, sign up for my newsletter, the Bear Facts, which is thebearfacts.com. And I always talk about my upcoming uh, events and podcasts that I've been on, like this amazing show, et cetera, uh, in the newsletter. Awesome, Jay. Well, Jay, I really appreciate that you took the time to chat with me today. It's been fun and insightful. Uh, I really appreciate it. A lot of fun. All right. And thanks to the listeners. If you're listening to the podcast and also want to see Jay and I, video the podcast and others will be available in the podcast section of contentmonster.com. Take care. Mm. Thank you for listening to the Business of Marketing podcast, a show brought to you by ContentMonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on ContentMonster.com as well as aleejudge.com. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.